Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, folks. Oliver here this week. Uh, we have an interview today with Tiffany Chu, the COO of Remix, um, an incredible piece of software helping cities uh, remake and plan out their transit and then their streets and streetscapes, um, which has very big implications for micromobility. Um, but before we dig into that, uh, just wanted to do a shout out for Micromobility Europe that's coming up October 1st in Berlin. Um, it's going to be an incredible event. Uh, we have Joe Krauss, the, the COO of Lime, he's going to be speaking. Um, we have Alan Wells uh, from uh, Uber, who will jump, the, the head of robotics for Jump, um, talking about all the exciting stuff that they're doing uh, there. We're going to have executives from Bird, uh, Tia, Voy as well, um, and then some really exciting stuff um, covering the, the rise of micromobility in Germany, because uh, Germany will, at that stage um, by October, have just come out of its first summer of shared micromobility on the streets. They've just deployed scooters now. Um, so I imagine they're going to be having some very interesting conversations, and uh, it will be an incredible, incredible event. Um, James and Luke and the team are doing a, uh, a great job organizing it, and it's going to be very exciting. Um, so if you're interested in coming and joining us in Europe, um, I'll be up from New Zealand. Uh, head over to micromobility.io uh, and register and get your tickets. Um, unfortunately, you have just missed the early bird, but um, look, the tickets are great. Um, there's also a blog post there in case you need to work out how to get it funded by your employer. Um, just go check out the blog. Uh, it's it's a great way to talk to, uh, yeah, look, how, how do we keep track of this very exciting um, rise of micromobility and, um, and how is it relevant for my company? Well, we, we've already thought of that. And uh, yeah, you can find all that on our blog. Um, but in the meantime, here is Tiffany. And welcome back to Micromobility. I'm Oliver. And today I have with me Tiffany Chu from Remix. How are you going today, Tiffany? Hey, Oliver. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing very well. You are up in San Francisco. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Ah, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, look, we are really excited to have you on the podcast. Actually, you were on a previous podcast. You were on the panel at Micromobility in San Francisco in January. Oh, the one in, in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we published as a podcast. So the listeners actually may know who you are, which is very exciting. But I've been following you for a while. And for the audience, I know it'll be really exciting for them to hear a little bit about you, your story and how you came to found Remix. So a little bit about me. So I grew up in suburban New Jersey, which I think says a lot about why I care so much about cities today. I yeah. grew up on a cul-de-sac and I studied urban planning and architecture in school. And I think what I learned through that process is just the ability to shape the urban environment and how people move through it is something that I want to dedicate my life to. Yeah, cool. So Remix actually came out of a side project at Code for America. So I met all my, my three other co-founders, Sam, Dan, and Danny at Code for America. We were all doing one-year nonprofit fellowships with different cities around the country to help them basically innovate through new technology with their IT departments and launch open data portals in the city of Charlotte, which is what I was doing. Yeah, cool. 
And Remix came out of, it was just a discussion at our desks. We were all sitting near each other and a bunch of really awesome open source mapping components were just coming online in around 2014. And we thought, how cool would it be for us to build a grassroots prototype as a way for citizens living in cities to suggest better transit routes to their public transport agency. So in our case, it was the SFMTA or Muni in San Francisco. Yeah, interesting. And it went viral on Twitter. It was called Transit Mix at the time, completely took off and a bunch of blogs wrote about it. And then planners who read the blog started emailing us. I think within two days, we got about 200 emails from planners all over the world saying, hi, I saw this thing that you built. I would like to use it for my 2040 transportation plan in XYZ country. Please add these 25 features so I can do my transportation plan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, that's an easy way to find product market pretty early on, right? And we were like, holy shit, what is happening? And as someone, I have a background in urban planning, but I never, you know, practiced as a transportation planner. So I felt like we had just stumbled upon something really interesting. And then we started lining up a bunch of user research interviews with planner friends in the Bay Area, invited them over to Code for America for coffee, asked them what they did for their job, and we had just uncovered this part of the workflow that no one was really addressing, and that was kind of how Remix was born. Yeah, awesome. So talk me through, what does Remix do? So you guys sell to governments, municipalities, is that correct? Basically, I think at a high level, we are a platform to help cities and transit agencies plan out their transportation future. And Mm -hmm. in some cases, we're focused on transit planning, which is where our roots are. In a bunch of cities, we help them redesign their streets for their multimodal future. And most recently, we've gotten into shared mobility, so helping cities plan for and manage some of the dockless and docked bike share and scooter programs that have been popping up everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Which is how I believe you ended up on the panel for the software for micromobility. <laughs> yeah. So look, talk me through. We've had Regina from Populous on as well, like last year as well. And, you know, obviously you guys are in that space. She was sort of saying, look, you can see a really interesting impact for micromobility in the cities just because it's obviously like just exploded. We're now sort of six, 12 months a little later. What do you see as cities now in terms of how they're thinking about micromobility as we're talking in June 2019? Yeah, I guess, first of all, I love Regina's research and her work. I think she's been a trailblazer in this space. And the way we're coming at it is, I think, from a transit first kind of perspective. We really believe that transit is the backbone of most major cities. And we've been working with about 320 cities around the world, which means about 4,000 planners have influenced about hundreds of city projects. And we've seen in places, actually we've worked with Auckland and Wellington in New Zealand, helping them redesign their public transport networks. And I think what we've noticed is that a lot of the planning that's done today is basically a practice or a workflow that has been very much the same over the last century of you know transportation planning. And then all of a sudden, all these new modes landed and planners are now being faced with hundreds of new challenges that they've never had to deal with before. And the new challenges lead to more questions. And I think just the entire discipline of transportation, transportation planning has changed faster in the last you know 12 months and in the last 12 years. Yeah, crazy, right? 
<laughs> That's actually a really interesting point because there's something that keeps on coming up in all of the conversation that I've been having with people around micromobility in our cities. I mean, we're seeing cities like San Francisco and some European cities massively increase the numbers of shared micromobility devices in use. So San Francisco just announced it was going to like increase the number of docked and dockless bike shares up to 11,000. But it's not necessarily coming with a commensurate increase in infrastructure. And we yet we know that infrastructure is really, really, really important. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, what are the, you know, obviously you guys are building tools that are available to regulators, but what are the sort of opportunities that you see for entrepreneurs to be able to help speed that up and ensure that this infrastructure and other things are rolled out safely and effectively? I think the most important concept here is that modes don't operate in isolation. And it's really unfortunate that in a lot of cities, the way that the staffing is allocated, the modes that are occupying the exact same space in our streets are siloed in so many different departments. So I think what we've had to learn as a company and myself as an entrepreneur is that the way that we think about how things should be on the street and how modes should not be siloed is just, you know, might be completely at odds with how a city or an organization like a city is structured. And to find ways to be a convener or break down those silos as a way of helping cities approach old problems in new ways. <laughs> I was literally at a Ministry of Transport planning day yesterday in New Zealand, or not planning day, but public discussion that they're having with some of the planners. They were talking about how they're thinking about, they do transport modeling with their cars, but they think predominantly about cars. They don't think about, you know, there's a little bit to do with public transit. Don't even think about micromobility, kind of trying to work out how to factor in cycling. And yet you have all of these, you know, you've got different modes, obviously, all fighting for space on a street. Can you talk through what you mean by they're siloed or that there's non-exclusive or exclusive use? Yes. So obviously when you think about transit, there's usually like some entity that is the transit agency or the transport agency who's in charge of transit. Yes. And then maybe there's one person, maybe on that entire team that thinks about active transportation, even though those modes, you know, oftentimes, you know, lots of cyclists use the bus or use trains, et cetera. And then within an active transportation team or division within the larger DOT or a city, there's maybe one person even thinking about transit and maybe the shared mobility stuff is completely in a different department, maybe in the regulatory department, which like sits in a completely different building. And then when cities are trying to launch their dockless programs, they're like trying to convene, you know, four different departments who have some piece of the puzzle, but there's not clear ownership or there's not clear performance metrics that they're setting across all the different silos. And we've seen Remix be really effective as that connected tissue and collaboration layer amongst many different departments who think were previously siloed, but in the arrival of new mobility, they're now seeing things in a shared goal, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that's really useful. I want to dig in on the street real estate thing, because I mean, this is something that you sort of mentioned that you guys do at Remix, which is how you help cities plan out streets. Do you think that, you know, with the rise of micromobility, it's like, hey, we know that bike lanes, for example, are going to be or low speed electric or low speed lanes are actually really, really, really important to being able to facilitate safe movement around a city for these devices. Do you see that we're going to get quicker at building that? And what are the kind of roadblocks to being able to rapidly shift infrastructure across? Yeah, so I think the first known example of micromobility slow lane I saw on Twitter was in Kansas City, and I think it was Better Block, a nonprofit activist group who 
recognize the need and just, you know. Tactical urbanists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is oftentimes how a lot of change starts. I mean, look at Times Square in New York. And that was, I think, the first known instance. And then we started seeing several cities. The one that comes to mind most immediately is Santa Monica, who has been ground zero for shared micromobility. And we've actually started working with them recently. And they ended up being able to use the mechanism of taking, you know, whatever the fees that there were from micromobility providers who were operating there and actually directing those funds towards infrastructure like protected bike lanes, bike racks, et cetera, parking locations for specifically scooters and bikes. And I think it was something like $11.2 million of that money was directly for infrastructure. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the future. Santa Monica is paving the way for everybody to figure out how to tie that link so much more closely together Mm. in a way, because you got to follow the money. And one way is asking the mobility operators to pay for it, but I don't know if that's super sustainable. We need to figure out how to get the infrastructure dollars flowing from, say, the gas tax or, you know, what have you into all of these different modes where active transportation can take so much of that pressure off of our streets from single occupancy vehicles. Yeah, completely. (laughs) Those are two anecdotes that stood out to me as wow, cities are really, really paving the way. And it's kind of like a sense of optimism that I see. I don't think it's happening fast enough. You know, fast forward four months later, I haven't seen as many cities as we had hoped blaze the trail as aggressively as those two examples. And I really do hope to see more. I gave a presentation to the Ministry of Transport in New Zealand three weeks ago. And I sort of was saying to them, look, guys, the thing that we're seeing is that this is disruptive. It's these devices cost $600 in the form of a scooter. And then, you know, you think you kind of have nailed it. You know, there's a lot of back padding, people getting really excited and saying, like, we kind of handled these shared scooter companies like Uber and Lyft. They kind of caught us with our pants around our ankles. But don't worry, we've got these guys nailed. And it's like, no, you don't, because it's going to end up being leased and owned micromobility is going to overwhelm a lot of cities. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to see the numbers of these vehicles explode. And yet we're not going to have the infrastructure. And so I sort of said to them, look, the thing that you guys think is that you're taking a low risk approach because you think you've got it handled. But actually the low risk approach, you're actually miscalculating your risk around the fact that you're going to have a lot of people utilizing these vehicles. They're going to have to try and use them on the footpath or they're going to have to use them on the road. If they use them on the road, they're probably going to get hit by cars. And then you'll have this challenge that you have to adapt these infrastructure really. You'll have to look at trying to adapt this infrastructure really quickly. And it's just it's at a mismatch to the speed of the political process, I think in a lot of cities around like how long it's taken in San Francisco or even Santa Monica and certainly in New Zealand and Australia to be able to build these lanes. You know, it's like, oh, no, that's a five-year process to be able to go build that stuff or it's a 10-year process to be able to build that stuff. I will say I have seen faster iterations that have emerged from when cities are using Remix for the street design side of things. And one example is in Montgomery County in Maryland, right outside of D.C. They wanted to basically advocate for sidewalks in a really rural part of the county. Sidewalks on a major road that had, you know, a ton of school bus pick up and drop off. And they were trying to figure out they could add a two-way bike lane and fit that in the right-of-way. And we saw, I think it was probably going to be a two- or three-year public engagement process accelerate down to basically a summer and a fall. So two seasons where they were going through iterations and there was like collaborative efforts in Remix from 
stakeholders in the community and the transportation engineering department together in a variety of settings. And we saw that project accelerate, which was really exciting. And then a similar thing is going on in Providence right now, who we're working with this nonprofit People for Bikes, if you're familiar with them, they actually gave Providence a grant to see if they could improve their street design process with Remix. (laughs) So we've been actively following along and watching them sketch out a ton of new bicycle infrastructure in the city at the same time as Jump is launching and proliferating in the community too. And this is kind of why, you know, I was really excited to have you on the podcast and talking more about it is because I do see the role of software as being able to help facilitate and control that almost like take that political process and speed it up a little bit, right? Yes. If you can have that be a collaborative process that everybody can like be part of as you're doing that design, then it can really shorten down those oftentimes because the planning cycles, if you can sort the funding, that's fine, but you still need to get through the political discussion and that can be made a lot quicker if you've got a collaborative approach. And that's where software I think can really help. One thing I'll add, because of the rise of micromobility in so many of these cities, we're now able to pull in that data and aggregate into various heat maps to show where people are going and basically visualize the demand. And that way, when you can show that in your public engagement process to show so many people are using it, then all of a sudden you're using data to drive where to put in infrastructure as opposed to the loudest Yes, the loudest voice in the room. Oh, no, no, I don't want to bike pass. You're going to bike pass down my road. Or how dare you take away my residence parking? Absolutely. Hey, I want to shift tacks a little bit here to talk about the MDS and GBFS standards. And I'll frame it up like this, which is I actually had David Zipper on the podcast recently. And David was at the transportation camp in DC in January. And he said he came across this big argument that was going on between as he put it, two very successful people in their own respective fields. And he was talking about you and Ryan Recepke from the CEO of Jump. And you were apparently in a big argument about MDS and the standards behind it. We're still kind of exploring this and I've been trying to get more people on the podcast who can talk through what MDS is and why these standards are so important. But I'd love to hear your perspective. Just for those who don't understand what they are, they come to this completely blind, what they are and then why they're important and how you think about them at Remix. So you can't, see me because this is a podcast, but I'm smiling because (laughs) I hadn't remembered it as an argument, but I do remember coming in hot and then Ryan speaking up. And then I didn't realize Ryan was the founder of Jump and he was sitting next to me and we were all of a sudden getting into this thing. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I, I do remember that moment fondly and I'm I guess I'm glad and happy that David caught on too. So I guess taking a step back, I think where we are in this journey through MDS, GBFS, et cetera. So for the audience, MDS stands for the Mobility Data Specification. GBFS stands for the General Bike Share Feed Specification. GBFS has been around for longer than MDS, and both have emerged in the forefront of the best way for data to be shared between cities and micromobility providers. So that's kind of the 101. Yep. I think where Remix comes into this is, first of all, taking a step back, we strongly believe in supporting good data standards and data standards are absolutely the building blocks to software and technology being possible in a lot of ways. And I will go back in history a little bit and cite the general transit feed specification from the transit side of things that we can learn from and all of that history between TriMet in Portland and Google being able to 
collaborate in a really successful kind of unprecedented public-private partnership of sorts. Yeah, completely. Just for the audience as well, GTFS is the standard that allows you to see where your bus and your train are. So there's a sort of like a standardized feed for timetables, but also as well for locations so you can see live updates and stuff. But it means that Google Maps can see where your train and bus are. And that's what Transit and City Mapper and all the other, they all use that generalized standard and everybody around the world now uses that for transit feeds. Yes. And I think that is a place where we felt data standards really paved the way. And that's also part of the reason why Remix is able to exist today because of GTFS as a data standard being able to help cities in a standardized way, being able to take transit data into Remix and remixing their transport network in the platform. So that's kind of our standpoint and our roots of why we're so excited about this conversation. And when we started hearing about MDS from LA and LADOT, we have been working with for several years now on the transit side of things. And we really were excited because a city was taking on a new data specification for the first time in this new world. And we want to get involved. So we started contributing to the GitHub repo and trying to push it forward and prove it and seeing where we could start to add value. Mm-hmm. And I think what we realized was that there's so much learning to do in this entire industry. And the mobility community is all kind of learning at the exact same time. And today we're using MDS and GBFS to build reporting tools and analysis tools because they really help cities solve problems on the ground right now. And with this whole discussion around MDS and GBFS, I think there's so much work that we need to do on the privacy and the security side because this data is inherently just way more sensitive than, say, transit data. And I mean, my hope is that the industry will continue to work on longer-term solutions of what these standards look like in this privacy-sensitive, privacy-conscious world that we now exist in, whether we like it or not. And I think our bottom line here is what's been very clear to us throughout our body of work so far over the last four and a half years in transportation is that cities, the public side and mobility providers or transportation operators, what have you, have never really had a great way of communicating. And we see MDS and GBFS as the forefront of the way that a city can communicate with all of the providers that are trying to help a city achieve its goals and vice versa. Oh, I see. So when you say communication, you really mean like communication with an operator and saying, hey, you happen to be parked in this particular place, but actually that's not allowed or whatever. Is that the sort of idea that you had? Yeah, that's one manifestation of it. And I don't think we've really seen that exact use case be put in practice just yet. Yep. We launched this new feature in Remix called Policy Zones, where you can indicate kind of a geofenced area. In Columbus, they had this street festival, and they were basically drawing out in Remix where that was going to be and then putting some sorts of rules around the time of day and what was allowed within that zone and sharing that out with providers in a way that every provider knew exactly the same thing and they were on the same page, which in this new world of, you know, one city to potentially 12 different operators operating in a single community, it's a lot of communication that needs to be done. And we think it's the right place for software to play a role in that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously the pushback from Jump has been predominantly around privacy and the, the sort of the privacy issues. They're saying, well, why can't you have sort of a delayed feed? And also, why can't we aggregate a bunch of those trips together? And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, when you're planning or thinking about planning, being able to have all of that data down to individual trips, how really important is it to be able to do that? Or do you think it's just a sort of a power struggle that's going on between LADOT and Jump and some of these other providers who are fighting it? So I think it's both. And in our perspective, I think there's a time and place for trip data and there's a time and place for aggregation. And to be fully honest, I think aggregation solves many of the planning questions that cities will be asking. And the question is less around, is it aggregated or is it trip data? It's more around what level of granularity is that line going to be drawn? And if cities get a certain amount of aggregation if they realize they have actually more detailed questions to ask, can they go back to the providers and say, hey, I actually want a little bit more understanding of you know the contextual blah, blah, blah here and there. Yeah, can totally. we ask detailed questions of the data? And maybe the answer is, yeah, well, we need to probably do another set of aggregation and making sure that it is fully within the power of a city to be able to ask those questions without them necessarily needing to make the hard decision of we have to have every single piece of data that's out there because cities often don't even want that. So it will often vary city to city. And we've totally seen such a huge spectrum of philosophies with all the cities that we work with, which makes us believe that there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to this and that whatever data standard that emerges, it needs to be able to have the flexibility to say where along the aggregation spectrum do you want to be and make sure that you as a city are aware of the trade-offs of it. I think filtering it as an either-or, like either you want the data or you care about privacy, is completely derailing the core of the argument, which is how can we all make transformation better and really boils it down to not the right dichotomy or just like a false dichotomy. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the thing that I look at with MDS and the reason that I got excited about it is that I can see the world in which ultimately I walk along the street and I like in New Zealand, we have like a local operator who operates scooters and we have jump in Wellington at least. And I don't really care about either of the operators. I just want a scooter when I want a scooter and that you should be able to open any of those scooters and they should be able to talk to each other. And that's where I can see that like the long-term play around this, especially the way that cities are rolling these scooters, you know, the rolling these shared micromobility platforms out. It's like no scooter company is going to have full coverage of the entire city. So they should really be working in co-optition with each other and having open data standards that allow each other to open each other app or whatever. And then they come up with some sort of revenue sharing agreement, et cetera, is where I see that platform being built that allows for all the other interesting stuff that be able to sit on top of. And that's the part that sort of I can see with the evolution of where MDS would get to. And the part that I'm kind of perplexed by is that I would have thought Uber would be very supportive of that because it allows them to scale to all these cities without having to necessarily scale their own service, right? So they can be in small cities that they would never go and launch in Uber and, for example, like the ride-sharing product, but they can just say, yeah, no, if anybody comes in and uses the Uber app, they can open the scooters on the street as long as you're part of these, you know, approved programs. And that's the part that I'm just like trying to get my head around as to why it isn't where we have to go to to be able to get to that level to get those building blocks in place. Yeah, super interesting to hear how other countries and other cultures are dealing with this. Sounds like there's so much cross-continental learning that should be happening. It's interesting because in New Zealand, so we adopted MDS for the scooters just because it was like, well, that's the standard. So that's what we'll use. But actually, we uh, the regulator here had tried to build a program where they had an open mobility marketplace. 
And so all rides from transit, from taxi, from uh, bike shares and from scooters were all meant to be aggregated into this thing. And so in theory, you could go to one place and have the payments facilitated across everything. That was the sort of like the end point of where you'd think MDS would get to. And in New Zealand, we ran it as a total, like the government held on to no trip data. It just merely maintained it as a sort of like a marketplace, but didn't own any of the data. All the data was maintained between the device, the person's you know phone, and then with the operator. And they just helped facilitate payments. So there wasn't any questions there about, oh, the government's like knowing where all my trips are going and all that sort of stuff. But that's proved challenging to implement. And so the part that I'm trying to get to is like, well, what does that operating system look like? Who's going to build that internet of mobility that allows you to trip chain? You know, I want to go and take plan a trip. I'm going to hop on a bus. I'm going to hop off knowing that there's a scooter there that's already reserved and it's part of it. And actually that my public transit agency can subsidize that scooter because it knows that it induces four times as many trips on scooter. You know, if they can part subsidize the scooter trips, they know that they're inducing trips to go onto public transit and get people off the roads which is something that they should be willing to fund, right? That layer has to be built. Yeah, 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 totally. And I don't know, I don't know what it's going to look like, but that's the part that I'm just trying to unpack as I go along and learn more about the space. Hey, I'm aware you've got to go in a couple of minutes. So really quickly, how is Remix as a company doing? You recently raised a $15 million Series B. Congrats. What are you planning to do with the capital? Thanks. I guess we started off in transit, had success there. Then we really wanted to expand into street design, shared mobility. And we're going to continue looking for ways to work with cities and the industry and kind of be that connective tissue. And I think there's just so much opportunity in urban transportation right now. Everything's going through this massive explosion. Cities are thinking about so many different modes. One in two transit agencies across the U.S. already use Remix. And so we really want to invest in the platform and build it out in a way that enables cities to see the whole holistic transportation picture and really enable technology to break down all these new silos that we're discovering every day. And we want to enable cities to see how well all of these new micromobility providers are doing you know, successfully meeting equity criteria, doing well on performance, and really shift the needle in terms of multimodal being a really pragmatic future as opposed to this, you know, pie in the sky that only a couple cities in the world can achieve. Yeah, totally. I hear you. And as we see the sort of more solutions for micromobility emerging, there will be a lot of entrepreneurs who can see opportunities for municipalities and trying to kind of handle the rise of this new tech. I'm curious about your experience of working with municipalities because that's, we'd actually, Angel List Syndicate, we'd sort of been looking at investing in companies like yourselves or others who are kind of trying to sell to municipalities. And we'd always been a little bit scared away by the idea of a sales cycle to municipalities because it's just like, oh, that can be just tricky. It's hard to scale that. But I'm thinking for other entrepreneurs of thinking of getting into this area, what would you recommend about building services or solutions for governments in this space in your experience having built Rima? I think the first and maybe the most important step is empathy and empathy for government and the jobs that people do in government. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs actually don't have a ton of government experience. And when we were at Code for America, one thing that was a core belief for us was that government can work for the people, by the people in the digital age. And that sort of mentality, I think, is so lost on a ton of entrepreneurs that I've happened to bump into and, you, you know, various. Rose, Tiffany? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I always recoil when I hear various tech people use the word disrupt and, you know, we got to revolutionize and we got to, you know, completely rip it up and throw out, you know, hundreds of years of 
the ways we've been doing things that, you know, a lot of times have worked well and coming in with a mentality of empathy first, you know, putting folks, you know, on our team, when we hire, we actually make sure that we hire folks who have been in the shoes of our customer cities before. And yeah. we think empathy is absolutely the most important thing. Without that, you can't build anything that's going to solve the needs of anyone. Yeah, totally. No, I really, I think that's a very valid perspective. And I have been toying with this. It's just been watching like Lime and the sort of the way that they've tried to expand and the fact that, hey, look, you guys are at series, what is it, series C, series D and your capital raise. You know, your investors are expecting really serious returns. You know, when they're committing $300 million, they're expecting that they're going to get that money back. And I can imagine the conversation with the investors has been like the investors saying, yep, cool, you need to double in the next year. And them going to their cities and saying like, cool, yep, we need to double in the next year. And the cities are like, whoa, back the truck up. You know, we are like struggling to absorb what you guys are already doing. And just this real mismatch in that world between disruptive innovation and cities and needing to accept and absorb this innovation. But hey, look, I think it's just such an interesting space. And I think you do a really, really, really good job of being able to work between those understanding how the tech guys see it and also understanding how the cities guys and the city folks who are at the end of the day at the coalface having to deal with constituents who are probably really pissed off that there are scooters all over their streets and, you know, what they have to be facing. So, look, I thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to having you back on at some stage in the future. Thank you so much, Oliver. Thanks for having me. No worries. Cheers. Have a good one.